Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast, the show that brings together Michigan's top cannabis growers, advocates, and business owners to offer a fresh and honest perspective of Michigan's cannabis industry. Stick with us to get the lowdown from the people who have been on the ground floor of cannabis business in Michigan and gain insights into where the industry may be heading. Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Basor, and today is episode 86.5. We wanted uh, to have uh, we had the pleasure of having Director Brisbo on the show today. It was so much going on in the state. Uh, I thought it'd be great to be able to have a special show. So thanks for being on, Andrew. Hey, my pleasure. I think this is the second or third time I've been on, but is this your first half episode? Do I get the honor of being the first uh, half episode guest? This is the first half. We actually are celebrating the history of uh, Women's History Month. So we had, uh, you know, uh, Krista Beller on yesterday is a great guest and uh, the rest of the rest of the month. So but, um, you know, this is the first first half guest. And I think this is your third time. So um, right. um, I may have to have your co-host here sh- shortly. But <laughs> with that, uh, we got uh, Tom over at Really. Tom, Tom, good seeing you again. Good to see you guys, too. Very grateful that uh, the director will, you know, makes time to, to speak with us and everything. So I think that that right there shows you a lot. So but good to see you. Thank you. Kevin, what's happening? Not much. I'm a little thrown off today. I had uh, alarms going off at the building at, at uh, 1.45 this morning. Uh, gratefully, it was a false alarm, but it never uh, changes your mindset when you get woke up at that time and uh, kind of hard to get back to sleep. And so I'm a little sluggish today, but I'm here. I wanted to be here for the director. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show yeah. and uh, looking forward to uh, to getting into some things. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm glad it was a false alarm. I got woken up by a four-month-old at 2 a.m., so uh, a little bit different. But um, I'm really happy uh, Director Brizzo came back on the show. Uh, he has been on, like we said, a couple of times before. And, you know, I got a chance to get to know him a little bit before he was uh, the director of the MRA and also the president of the Cannabis Regulator- uh, Regulators Association nationally. Um, and was always willing to talk and meet. And as uh, as his, his roles or his jobs evolved, and um, we see him up at every uh, MICA summer annual speaking. Uh, every you know, we just had you. At, uh, you were the the speaker at the MICA Winter Gala. Uh, really appreciate. I think you're known as the most accessible regulator in the state, but maybe I don't know about the rest of the country. I'm not up on on that many other regulators in the other states, but I got to think you're near the top of the list. So thanks for thanks for coming on again. And there's a lot of topics going on, and one that uh, I've been I wanted to just lead it off since I've been talking a lot about it, and uh, so we have been on the show. And Tom and Kevin, as I saw on March 10th, we have a a hearing on remediation. And um, it's a big topic, you know, uh, cannabis is, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, news out there, a lot of press of uh, people pushing for safe and clean cannabis. Uh, we feel that if you're gonna remediate cannabis, it should be on the bag, or if it's part of your SOPs um, uh, that you pre-remediate, that that should be on there as well. So um, I see the hearing, what's, uh, what's going on with the hearing and what, what's, uh, what's going on with the state on that aspect? Well, the, so we have these quarterly public meetings where we have public comments. Uh, we always hear on a variety of topics. It's sort of all over the place. Uh, but we decided to take a new approach, and this was the first topic we wanted to throw out there so that when we have the public meetings, we can gather some broad-based feedback on certain topics. 
think it's a great opportunity to hear from a variety of stakeholders. And I've been hearing from different groups and individuals about remediation and whether there should be labeling uh, related to it. Some states do it, others don't. And I just didn't have a strong sense about whether it was a good idea for us to do it by rule or not. Um, and typically we get feedback when we draft rules, there's a public comment period for that. But I think it insinuates that the agency is attempting to move forward in that way. And we just haven't made up our mind about it yet. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to, to just put it out there, uh, give anyone who hasn't been proactive in reaching out to us about the topic an opportunity to let their, let their thoughts be heard, put a few specific questions out there to drive the conversation and just hear where it takes us and make decisions about developing policy uh, after hearing everybody out. Now, do is this something that you you've been uh, as a topic on the national level now that you've got you know your the you know cannabis involved to to, to have a national regular uh, regulators association? Is this something other states are dealing with and talking about? It it's it's been a topic of conversation in, in the past, and and what we typically hear about it now when new states are developing programs and they become aware that remediation is occurring, particularly what you described as sort of pre-remediation, those, mm -hmm. those businesses that actually, you know, run their flower through a willow machine or expose it to, to x-ray in order to uh, ensure that it passes microbial testing. And a lot of times they ask questions about do states restrict that or not? Do they restrict the, me the methods by which that's done? Uh, so, so there's some engagement on it. I think there've been a lot of other topics that have been driving the conversation, uh, you know, federal policy reform, novel cannabinoids that sort of ruled the day, but it does still come up from time to time. Okay. Yeah, just in, in general, I've, I've learned a lot actually from listening to Tom talk about it. And obviously it burns up, uh, you know, as, as a consumer um, and as the, the market gets educated towards terpenes, uh, we've discussed that before privately. Uh, you know that's uh, that's where it will eventually head in not THC. Um, a lot of the um, when you look up a, a strain, it's going to show um, what terpenes are most likely in it and those genetics. So the, obviously those get burnt up or changed. And then uh, Tom, did you want to jump in? You speak better about it than me. <laughs> well, really, yeah. The, with remediation. In the state of Michigan, we have very strict regulations, right, for health and safety. Our testing uh, up until, I believe, Massachusetts was some of the strictest as far as microbial content uh, is involved and, of course, metals and, and the list of pesticides and things we're not allowed to use in the, you know, in, in, for public health and safety and just to, to have clean cannabis as, as part of the requirements at the state level. So... I'm just curious, you know, I know that there's just not enough research out there to determine at what level, what is the harm of these compounds and that are left over post remediation that are still present. I mean, obviously it doesn't remove it from the surface and like what, what type of, um, you know, what type of compounds are there that, you know, and what is the data as far as proving that it is actually safe for human consumption. And, uh, you know, if, if we're waiting for um, we're waiting for data and we know that how fast it, it takes for any kind of um, any kind of data to come in on, on a real scientific basis. Um, luckily, Michigan has a new license type, right, for for research and development, which is very progressive. You know, maybe this is something we could we could tackle to determine if these methods are truly safe um, in, in remediating products and safe for consumption. Maybe that's something that we need to look at. 
at first just to make sure that maybe these are methods that are safe. But in my opinion, from what I have experienced, uh, you can manage a facility without need requiring remediation. And a lot of the reasons why people require remediation prior to testing is because their facilities are built at such a scale, they can't manage the environment to prevent these things from happening. Uh, and then obviously that, that creates a problem if we're just, you know, we're just saying, we'll just put it in the easy bake oven, it'll be okay, and then we'll sell it and the prices go down and people gear themselves towards the price sensitive product. So if they see a product, they should know the reason why it is very inexpensive to them is because it's remediated. It's fine. You want to buy it? Absolutely. You know, this is America. But at least people know are, you know, are aware of what they're purchasing. Yeah, I, th I think you hit on an interesting point there, Tom, that, you know, the agency's always focused on health, safety and welfare. And, and you know, I'm not aware of any existing empirical data that would say certain remediation techniques could cause, you know, harm to the consumer. If, if that were the case, we'd certainly want to do something to, to prevent it. Uh, I think a lack of data is always a challenge in the cannabis space. You know, it's just there's not enough data as we would like in order to inform policy uh, making decisions. Uh, but to the point I think you're alluding to, uh, we also play a role in determining what information is made available to consumers, even if it's not potentially a direct threat to health, safety, and welfare. Uh, you know, thinking about including uh, expiration dates and uh, test dates and so forth. You know, that's just information so consumers can make informed decisions. So I think that is you know a factor of consideration there too. And I think that's why we've we've heard from consumer groups that are interested in. Uh, having that that label on any product that's been remediated, so for the sake of the consumer, uh, you know, determining whether the impact on the terpenes, for example, might you know make it so they don't want to purchase that product because it's but particularly if they're using it for medicinal purposes, that entourage effect and the effect the terpenes might have could be different if it's been remediated. That's at least what's been conveyed to us. So those are all important things to consider, and then obviously those those businesses who might. Uh, engage in some of those processes are concerned about the economic impact. If the uh, if the product is still safe for consumption, then they wouldn't want it labeled remediated. If uh, you know, they might put them at a, at a disadvantage. So, you know, those are all interesting and compelling points that we have to weigh and determine. You know, sort of what the best policy might be. What about mycotoxins and things of that nature that may still be present on the that actually can be more detrimental than say a yeast cell that will actually culture on a, on a dish and could potentially cause a failure. But the presence of a mycotoxins, and those are the real problems, you know, that people run into when they're inhaling um, mold spores and things. We're worried about the byproducts that are there already, but we're not actually measuring for because they are expensive to test for, which would increase the, the, the testing fees, of course, which are already kind of high and somewhat cost prohibitive. But what are your thoughts on that? I, you know, we, we've actually already established a pathway there with uh, aspergillus failures. We, we had originally required any failure for aspergillus. Uh, the, the only output was destruction. It had to be destroyed. And we heard concerns about that, that there were ways to remediate it. But the follow-up then is a requirement that they test for mycotoxins. Uh, and so, we, you know, those are the kind of things that as the market matures and we all learn more, we figure out different pathways forward. So I think those are always important issues to examine, you know, in the pursuit of health, safety and welfare. I'd almost think that one more thing, Kevin, I know you want to say something and then I'll, I'll step off. Um, in, a, in a matter of, you know, for public health and safety, I know it's one way to say, well, there's no data to say that it is harmful, but there's also in the same hand and the other side of, side of that 
token is that there's no data to prove that it's actually safe either. And that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, that's that's where you know we have to try to make judicious decisions. And you're right; sometimes it is that is how we look at it. Uh, you know, with uh, with some some innovation, we have looked at it as you described that we need evidence that it's safe before we're going to allow it to move through the market. That's typically how things are going to be looked at uh, through an FDA lens for food safety, for example. It's not about well, it hasn't killed anyone yet, so let's just keep letting it happen until it does, right? Um, but cannabis is such a such an odd space that, that I hear that from from uh, you know experienced consumers all the time. Like, why do we even have testing standards? We've been doing this for years, and and you know nobody's ever died. But I think the Avali outbreak taught us a lesson that some of those evolutions in the commercial market can lead to some of those challenges. And when you get to commercial scale, uh, now we're not talking about you know anecdotal issues. We're talking about things that could impact hundreds, if not thousands, of people all at once. So I do think the the, the scope of what we're examining and why it's meaningful starts to shift when you have larger scale operation and commercialization. Hey, Director Brisbane, I have a, a two-part question for you. Um, the, the first is um, when we talk about public safety and whatnot, in the beginning of, of the this industry, we, we allowed caregiver product to come in um, and then the uh, consumer would sign a, a release form knowing that it hadn't been tested prior to. Um, and then we've got the remediation tech that we don't really have a whole lot of evidence for or against. Um, do we have, uh, I, I know that some of our administrative fees goes towards, uh, you know, like uh, R&D and, and testing of the industry. Do we have some of those processes in place? And are we starting to um, kind of figure out what it is that um, is acceptable and what is not? And then my, my second part to that is, is that um, I know that um, you know, you guys issued a recall, a, a massive recall here, you know, fairly recently, and, and, and the courts overruled that and allowed that flower. And we're hearing that a lot of that flower tested uh, in, the, in the retest uh, as a failure, but they allowed it to go onto the shelves uh, anyway. How frustrating is that for you guys when you're trying to uh, oversee a, a regulatory body and do the right thing and then have the court step in and overrule your decision? Well, I, I think we need to learn lessons from that in terms of how the agency approaches some of those issues to ensure that they do pass legal scrutiny. And, you know, the, the court enjoined us. We, we were successful in getting summary disposition on nine of the 10 claims in that case. So I think reporting that, that uh, you know, that the state was overruled are uh, kind of missing the mark as to the outcome of that case. Uh, we were enjoined from enforcing a portion of the recall against one of the facilities, but the vast majority of what was recalled uh, is still subject to that to that recall. Um, obviously, you know we had uh, some follow up filings where we uh, pled with the court to reconsider its decision related to products that had been recalled, had failed follow up testing, and then we were enjoined from continuing to recall. That's obviously not how the system is designed to work, and that, that's certainly concerning. And we need to evaluate our processes to ensure that our decisions hold up to legal scrutiny in the, in the future. And that, that's something we're constantly evaluating. Um, you know, and I think when it comes to using data to inform decisions and doing some R&D, I think most of the R&D that's being done by licensees now is more in the product development side of things, uh, not really on evaluating scientific processes and, and evaluating testing. However, we do have robust discussion through our scientific advisory work group that includes representatives from the industry, from growers, processors, labs, as well as representatives from the uh, advanced chemistry programs at Northern Michigan and Lake State representatives from the agency and the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Agriculture to talk about 
data, uh, what can be applied from other industries and other plant material that could be applicable here. And then we're building the data as we go when we look at, uh, you know, outcomes and testing processes. And it, it is a learning experience and sort of building the plane as you fly it. But uh, that's kind of how Canada's policy works around the country, right? It, it's a this is an interesting experiment in democracy here when, you know, we get ballot initiatives that pass and put those put those responsibilities on the agency and we have to do the best we can. We look at what other states have done. We look at data that comes out of Canada because they do a lot more research in Canada. Other states are better positioned and have funding that's dedicated to doing uh, research and development and public health surveillance data. So we, we need to learn from those experiences and we're going to continue to try and advocate for more of that to be done in Michigan as well. Uh, but anytime you're talking about allocating funding toward anything, uh, you know, there's there's always a lot of robust discussion because using money for one thing inevitably takes it away from something else. And there are a lot of good outputs for revenue that's raised, both for administrative fees and tax revenue in the Canada space in Michigan. Well, that's, that's, uh, appreciate that, uh, you know, remediation. Uh, We'll, uh, we'll we'll keep talking about that week to week, but I wanted to kind of jump to what uh, seems to be the hottest topic in, in Michigan cannabis right now. Uh, it's what I've been hearing about the last three or four or five days, especially, um, you know, it was about was about 20 days or so ago. They, they um, you know, uh, they, the Governor Whitmer announced, the state announced that it's going to be the combining the 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 hemp and the the, mar the marijuana agencies besides except for I think the cultivation on the hemp side and is still going to do that um, but to process it and selling it and it's going to be the cannabis regulatory agency and you're now congratulations the director of that yeah. and then we just uh, we just saw um, you know are hearing about uh, this new uh, possibly conversion of hemp uh you know of hemp into the, the thc into the market and into the process and everything's got a lot of chatter so i guess what's uh what's going on with uh, the new agency and 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 how do you foresee this working so so we've been having discussions for quite a while with the department of agriculture when it came to their oversight of, of the hemp program and the usda really required them quickly to stand up the the licensing and oversight process for the cultivation side of things. And obviously the Department of Agriculture is very good at overseeing agriculture. That's one of their primary functions. But as we started to turn that conversation to consumer products that were derived from hemp, and we started to see all these intersectional issues between uh, hemp and marijuana under the broader cannabis umbrella, uh, it became clear that that it was more sensible just to leverage the existing infrastructure at the agency in order to oversee that. I think we see a lot of the same businesses operating in that space. Um, we see uh, research and development being conducted with converting uh, CBD distillate to THC distillate, either Delta-8 or Delta-9. Uh, and, and we also see with, with hemp processing opportunities for residual THC that's a result of that to be you know, a, a profitable product for those processors that are engaging in that. So I, I think we're, we're well positioned to kind of take what we do on the marijuana side and apply it as appropriate to, to the hemp side in terms of ensuring that those products are, are safe for human consumption as well, particularly in light of the FDA's ruling that 
um, CBD cannot be added to food as it's an adulterant because it's an active drug ingredient. Uh, whereas, you know, the MRA already oversees cannabis products that are infused uh, edibles because they are exempted from the food law. And so we just established some parallel standards. So I think we can do the same thing on the hemp side and create an efficient and safe regulatory system so those products can, can be brought to market in Michigan. And as it stands now, we're just sort of inherit, inheriting the uh, hemp um, processor handler licensing from MDARD as is. And then we're going to be engaging in discussions with a bill package that's been moving and is now in the Senate related to ostensibly CBD and its addition to food in order to help create some of those licensing processes, license types, uh, you know, establish fees and, and oversight so that we can really stand up that, that next phase of the hemp market, which is that processing and sales side. So excited to start digging into that. Uh, had some great productive discussions with stakeholders on the hemp side. Um, you know, and I, I'm confident that the agency can quickly stand that up and, and be just as effective in that space as we have been on the marijuana side. I'm curious as to why uh, growers aren't susceptible to the same type of regulations. If, if the end product being produced from their product is actually a Delta 9 or any type of product that is regulated under the MRA, then therefore all of the um, regulations that we, the only difference of uh, what we grow from what they grow is that we have ultimately THC acid and therefore some Delta 9. And, and if the product is being produced is the same type of product that needs to be regulated in the fashion that we are regulated under, the people that are actually producing the end product out of, I mean, say hemp, regardless of its source, uh, I, it, it's there any thought process in that, like maybe there's, if products are going towards the Delta 9 market, that they need to be treated differently. Uh, you know, the plant tagging, um, the inspections and all the things that come along with what, what we do every day uh, and, 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 the, and the cost associated with that. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of a, are people talking about that situation there? Because I know that at the processing level, yes, it's easy to then track it, what's come in with the biomass, but on the grower, on the grower's end and everything, if that's, if the market gets flooded by a bunch of Delta 9 that's created from hemp plants and the people that are producing them aren't, they don't have to pass testing at the flower level for pesticides and metals. I mean, uh, the, the the regulations are very different. So there's two rule sets governing the same the same plan. So I think the way we intend to approach it is is you know MDARD handling the cultivation side of hemp is related to the authority they have under USDA to, to do that. And the testing that's required there will just be to ensure that it's that it's below the THC threshold because the only output if it's if it's not is destruction. There's nothing else that can be done with that. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change. So, you know, we, we've been looking at consistent regulation of intoxicating products. And to your point, Tom, that's going to occur at the processor. So if we have raw hemp material that's being converted into intoxicating products, either Delta 8, Delta 9, 10, 7, whatever that it might be converted, if we allow any of those processes, we'll be subject to those same requirements. And that's where we'll have the testing as we do uh, on the marijuana side for any end-state consumer products for residual solvents, heavy metals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think we're being consistent there. We, we currently now do not require 
testing to occur at the cultivation stage for flour that's going to be processed into uh, distillate and infused products. A, a lot of folks still do, they choose to test it there just as a quality control. But we recently opened that pathway up to remove some of those testing requirements so that we reduce costs on suppliers, you know, free up some of the, the market for testing in order to ensure that things are moving quickly there. Um, so I, I think there's there's consistency there. And then we'll build out, you know, in the draft rules that we put out, I think we were trying to make very clear that any approval for a conversion process is going to be subject to strict oversight by the agency. There'll be individual approval needed for a specific process. Uh, nothing can be changed about that process without agency approval. And then the operator would have to agree that they may be subject to process specific testing requirements based on how they're engaging in that isomerization or uh, synthesizing of uh, CBD into uh, THC. So it's, it's, it's new territory. No other state has, has approved any of these sorts of processes yet. In fact, most states just flat out uh, statutorily prohibited any of those synthetic products, any of the Delta 8, Delta 10. Uh, so we want to open the pathway for innovation, but we also need to be very uh, diligent in ensuring that it can be done safely. So are you talking about the, the hemp processor will do the actual conversion or will that happen at the, uh, at the, um, the, the marijuana uh, processor? Well, a, a hemp licensee would not be authorized to handle THC products. So any of that, the, the way we've drafted it now, uh, if, if someone was converting the hemp distillate, uh, the CBD distillate into THC distillate, that would have to be a licensed marijuana processor through the agency. And then it's also, um, my understanding is we were having some discussions about this um, the other day, is that there is a way to test that oil and identify where it was derived from. And, and know that it was derived from hemp and not a, uh, a THC-based uh, plant. Is that something that the, uh, the, the department is considering as well? Yeah, I, I am aware that there are some labs that had been um, doing some research and development to uh, validate those tests. So it's not something that's required now, but I think if, if they are able to validate those, those types of tests, it's something we could consider. Uh, more, I think, from an enforcement perspective, I don't know if it'd be a standard test, particularly if we're allowing conversion to occur anyway. Uh, but one of the key components of those draft rules for the conversion process is that all of the, the raw material used in that conversion, whether that's CBD or whether that's raw hemp flour, would have to be sourced from a legal legitimate source. So we would rely on um, those regulatory bodies that oversee the hemp grower to make sure that, that the testing had occurred and, it, and it's legitimately done. Because we have someone else whose license would be on the line if they're supplying something that, that is non-compliant hemp material. Um, on that, we speak in kind of in the same vein as uh, the remediation and, and with this and consumers knowing what they're getting. If, uh, you know, I would, I would, as a consumer, I've been a long time consumer, many years, I would want to know if it came from, you know, a cannabis plant or if it was from hemp and what type of THC, is that something I saw? I think I saw one of the maybe it was the, the lobbyist that was uh, was pushing for this was 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 stating that it shouldn't be labeled at all. Um, is that is, is uh, I'm already have any thoughts on that? Well, our draft rules uh, did require that any uh, THC product that was made through this uh, conversion process would have to be labeled as such. Yeah. Um, we, we did get feedback on both sides of that. We're still evaluating all the feedback, but, but that was very specific in the draft. Uh, yeah. 
it, and you know, part of what we need, it, it is very similar to the remediation uh, conversation. Um, you know, what labeling is required? Is there a public health and safety component to that? Is it just for consumer education? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little, uh, I think our thought process on this because it's new technology uh, that, you know, the need for consumers to be aware of that was, was paramount uh, when we were drafting those rules. Cool. I uh, wanted to uh, switch focus because, uh, you know, you've, you've publicly, uh, I, I like when I see you in the news talking about what you think the sales are going to be for the state projections. And, you know, they're always pretty high and they, they're pretty, uh, pretty aggressive. And a lot of times what, what we're thinking, uh, how do you feel about 2022? Obviously, um, you know, COVID is to, uh, seems like it's lifted up as far as restrictions. Everyone's ready to get out and do it. So what uh what's what do you see happening for 2022 do you have a prediction on total sales you know that that's that's hard to to make i i always try and track the data and see where things are going we obviously you know just finished the second month of 2022 uh but the the price in the market uh came down so significantly that that's got to be factored into any projections in terms of overall revenue. Uh, the the amount of flour, if we look at that as sort of an uh, economic benchmark uh, that was sold in January was was higher than December, but total sales went down significantly because prices went down in the about 20% just between December and January in the adult use market and even more in the medical market. Uh, but I do think 2022, we're going to see a transition where the medical market continues to to shrink. Uh, we're seeing that trend downward, which is something I think we all expected, but has been slower than we might have anticipated. Um, we're starting to see a, a pretty steep decline in the number of registered patients. I think as more adult use operations come online, more municipalities adopt authorizing ordinances. So I think from a policy perspective, it leads us to really consider what policy changes might be made in support of this, you know, transition of investment on the industry side to the adult use market in order to reduce regulatory burden, reduce any sort of duplication of operation, and also ensure that we uh, continue to protect patient access to the regulated market as we see more and more medical licensees transition their operation entirely over to adult use. Uh, as an example, last month, um, we, we have 59 fewer active licenses on the medical side than we did the preceding month. And I think that's the first month where we've had more non-renewals or closures of licenses than we had new licenses issued. So I think we'll be looking at that over the next several months to see, is that a trend that's going to start picking up? Yeah, we, we just talked about that. I had a sales call this morning with, and, uh, you know, we, we we're hearing that from the different stores. We're going to drop our med and give the 10% um, discount, especially when Detroit uh, eventually comes on board someday. But uh, just on a, a real side note on that, and then I know Kevin's got a question is, you know, one thing that we're seeing with that, you'd mentioned that, that really deep uh, price decrease. Um, it's conversely, we've seen a lot of caregivers are shutting down their grows and can't sell their flower. That market just dropped way out. And there's other reasons for that maybe as well with Oklahoma being so robust. But, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people and, and, and even caregivers complaining that they're going like their, their, their patients are, are going into the store and buying flour now because the prices dropped so much and there's such good deals. So we're actually pretty interesting just as far as from 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 our my perspective that we're seeing people come off the the, the black 
the the black market or, or the caregiver market and 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 come into the stores so be pretty fascinating so um cool go ahead kevin yeah you know what i just saw krista uh ch- ch- chime in there on the bottom and talking about uh having minimum price set you know similar to alcohol and if that's a, a potential option my, my question kind of follows in line with that you know with the dr- dramatic uh price drop that we've seen <clears throat> um you know uh what do we do? You know, we, we're, we're talking about conversions. Um, that again will have an impact on the market. What do we do? Is there is there a thought on what we can do to protect the investment of the the licensees that have invested in the industry? Um, and and with the with the lack of opt in from municipalities on the dispensary level, um, where are we at on on the thought of potentially limiting how many plants are grown in the state? Uh, you know, we saw in, in Oregon a few years back where they had a, a million plus pounds of of, uh, of overstock of, of flour and it plummeted the market. Is there discussions here about because of the lack to, uh, lack of opt in that we at some point dis- discuss a, a limit as to how many plants we're going to allow in the state? And then again, uh, that that question goes to uh, the the uh, how do you, how do we protect the market um, and and the licensees in this case? Yeah, that's that's a a. A nuanced topic. I've certainly heard concerns from industry operators about the falling prices and how it's affecting their margins and stability of business operations, obviously, especially on the grower side of things. As it stands now, the agency doesn't really have any tools to address that. We don't have authority to set prices. We don't have authority to limit licenses. In fact, we have specific statutory provisions that say we can't do that. So there would need to be a legislative action in order to set those limits or give the agency the authority to do so. Uh, So I think the the stakeholders would have to decide they want to make a legislative push to make that happen. Um, We're still, you know, examining that that issue as well, though, like I said, the the primary action would have to be folks lobbying the legislature to decide to do something about it. And those folks I've talked to who have that concern haven't really given me a plan as to how they think it should be approached, but I'd be happy to, you know, consider that and and determine whether we should be supportive of something at the, the legislative level that would effectuate a change in that regard as well. But you know, one concern I would have also with limiting the number of licenses is we're we're really starting to get some traction with social equity and and you know licenses being acquired by individuals from the disproportionately impacted communities. So if you were to set a moratorium on licenses being issued, that's going to affect the progress we've made in in you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you know there'd also have to be some consideration. Like for example, now if someone were to make the arguments, there's adequate supply, we should stop issuing licenses. Uh, you know, are we going to do that right before Detroit adopts an authorizing ordinance and just say that everyone in Detroit's out of luck? You know, it's you know, do you tie that regionally? Um, you know, do you look at at uh, state level uh, price floors for wholesale instead? Uh, I'd be interested to see any of those plans, but it's going to take a pretty good consensus that uh, you know we've reached. Uh, enough supply to supply the state overall, even as new ordinances are adopted, and then some decision on what action should take place at the legislative level. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, even though we're three years in into this, um, I, I feel like there's still a, a ton of instability uh, in the market. Um, you know, we talked to a lot of people about this out, last year's outdoor uh, crop season, and uh, there were a ton of people from what we heard that were completely unprepared for harvest. They didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They didn't have freezer uh, space for their flour. They didn't have dry ice secured. They, there were some people that didn't even have uh, facilities to potentially dry their flour in. Um, those people 
people, I would think, are going to struggle moving forward to stay in business. And that could remove tens of thousands of pounds from the market coming up next year. Um, you know, I just think that there, it's, it's difficult to envision more change uh, in a market when um, I feel like that, that, that we, we're in the growth phase. People are trying to reinvest into their companies to stabilize their businesses. And I think that it's hard to do that with so much change and so much flux happening all the time. And that's just my opinion, I guess. Yeah, and I don't know the history of when uh, the state enacted a minimum price for wholesale and alcohol, which is regulated by Lara, is it? Uh, was that something yeah. that could be enacted through legislation? Was it something that, I don't know the history, so maybe if you do, or back yeah. check up in that. Yeah, so, so Michigan is a control state through the Liquor Control Commission. So the state actually acts as the wholesaler for distilled spirits uh, within within that market. Um, but that would take, I mean, that would be a, a huge shift in how the market works in Michigan. Uh, you know, Michigan is, is one of the states that has sort of this open free market. Many other states have control on the supply side by issuing a static number of licenses. But it was very clear in the ballot initiative that that was not the direction that, that Michigan was to go. So to to shift that would take a lot. And, and I think everyone is is aware of the data uh, as as the market is changing. But I do think it's important not to overreact based on you know one month or six months worth of data when this has been a, a very uh, a market in flux from the very beginning um, and prices you know have gone down and then gone back up and now they've been going down pretty consistently you know supply is there uh, the number of plants harvested in October of last year is about 449,000 that was the largest number of plants harvested in a month uh, prior to that uh, was like 130,000 but now we've had over 220,000 plants harvested every month since so and yet we still continue to issue month over month more grow licenses uh, than we did this time last year. So there's still a lot more people investing in the market. So, you know, obviously they're seeing something in those numbers that still gives them hope that they can compete in that market. Um, and it does become very challenging if the state's going to take a position that those entrepreneurs that have started to invest in, in plans and build up businesses are now going to be shut out of the market. Uh, I think it's got to be done in a very thoughtful way. Well, I, I, just a real quick, uh, you know, I do think it's interesting that you make that that point because then we're going to go ahead and allow the hemp producers to come into this industry and have a direct effect on it from that aspect. Yeah, I'm, I uh, I see a lot of the new people coming in or talking about it and, um, you know, without a plan or a plan to sell. So in my opinion, there's a lot of, a lot of new licensees. If anyone's listening, really, really, uh, really, really get your plan together because I feel like there's a lot of lambs to the slaughter coming in right now. Um, so, <laughs> but that's just me. Um, before we're, we're starting to run out of time, but I wanted to hear, um, I'm intrigued about the, uh, the National Cannabis Regulators Association and um, what you do with that. What's your what's your day to day or week to week or month to month responsibilities that you, you can talk about and, and what do you see? How do you see that going forward? And How's everything looking in DC from your standpoint? Sure, that that, that group's been incredibly beneficial uh, to the state of Michigan through the agency and continues to be beneficial to, to other states. I think the collaboration between state regulatory agencies is one of the greatest benefits uh, because there are really no other resources to turn to when you talk about cannabis policy in state markets. And every state market's a little bit different, but we all deal with some of the same issues. 
and so it's a great sounding board. Um, what, what we try to do is we have uh, voting member meetings uh, every uh, once per month and our executive committee meets once a month as well. I also coordinate um, quarterly calls between the Midwestern states where we talk about you know, Midwest related issues and, and more localized regional kind of issues. We also have a number of um, subcommittees that have been formed to dive into specific issues. Uh, so I was for a while before I became president of the organization, I was the chair of the federal policy and engagement committee where we had uh, meetings with congressional offices and federal regulatory agencies to talk about the evolution of policy at the federal level and make sure that state regulators perspective was considered there. Uh, because our viewpoint on that, while we wouldn't advocate for or against a federal policy changes specifically, um, that you know, state regulatory agencies and state policymakers are the only ones who have been through uh, these processes of trying to go from a prohibitionist era into you know, decriminalization or legalization. And so when that happens at a federal level, we have a value perspective and need to be at the table in order to lend that perspective to federal policymakers and federal regulatory agencies. Uh, we did put together our thoughts uh, during a comment period uh, that, that uh, Senators Schumer, Wyden, and Booker had requested feedback on the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act. That's all on the CANRA website if anyone wants to go see it. Really just drawing attention to some of those key issues that we think uh, need to be considered in any sort of federal policy reform. You know, and, and I think it seemed like sign, all signs were pointing toward incremental federal policy reform, right? You'd see safe banking first and then other pieces, uh, dominoes would start to fall in that way. But uh, the, the Senate Majority Leader seems to have taken the position that it's, it's broad reform or no reform, uh, which, which is an interesting way to approach it. I think having multiple proposals on the table, if you look at the Moore Act, uh, the CAOA, which will be introduced soon, uh, the States Rights Act that was introduced by Representative Mace from South Carolina presents a slightly different approach. That's that's all I think positive to having the conversation and really starting to dig into the nuance of what what form federal policy reform is going to take and get people engaged in the discussion. And we just want to make sure, again, that, that state regulators voices are heard in that discussion so that we can uh, help ensure that state markets are not uh, negatively impacted by changes made at the federal level. That's awesome. I'm glad that that's going on. And um, I remember even you talking about that something you're interested before that was even created. So it's uh, it's cool to see that you're in that position now and that's happening. And, um, you know, we want pure, pure Michigan uh, marijuana to be known all over the world. And uh, so hopefully we, we see a framework that lets that happen. Um, so uh, we're running out of time. Uh, it was a great, a great catch up. A lot of stuff going on, and it's, uh, I'm glad we uh, we had this special uh, uh, half episode. But before we wrap up, I want to let Kevin and Tom and the director say goodbye. So we'll let uh, Tom go first. Oh, just thank you very much for always being available and lending your ear. Love to hear the perspective of what's going on, and I just appreciate it. Kevin. Yeah, same thing, Andrew. I uh, appreciate you making yourself available for us. Um, I know that a lot of times when you put yourself in this position, you kind of you're a little bit vulnerable. You don't know what's going to happen, and you, you seem to hand, handle yourself really well, and and uh, and always come up with a good answer for what we're asking of you. So, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, I wish you the best uh, moving forward with the national stuff. And any final words of wisdom, Director Brisbane? Well, Brian, you said at the beginning that you appreciate my accessibility. You don't know uh, how other state uh, regulators uh, view this. So let's just, in the absence of any dissenting opinion, let's just assume I'm the most accessible 
uh, regulator across the country. And as long as we're throwing it out there, the most handsome too, if I could just. <laughs> oh, you had me, you had me there. And then I think you, uh, you might, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Overreached. No, 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 thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. And, um, you know, we're definitely going to have you back on. And, you know, this is a, a show that uh, we have about a thousand to 1500 people uh, listen, you know, each, each week. And it's all people in the cannabis industry, mostly in Michigan. So, it's a big it's a big deal for to, to hear from you directly and uh especially as things are evolving so um with that look forward uh, to coming back again and uh we'll see everybody uh next wednesday the smoking rope podcast is produced and hosted by me ryan basor the owner of redemption cannabis have ideas for episode topics or would like to be a guest on the show contact us at ryan b at redemptioncanna.com Thanks for being along for the journey.